the last few weeks, we've been working through Matthew's chapter 8 through 9, and it's been healing story after healing story after healing story, Jesus healing people with sicknesses and demon possession, healing nature itself, and showing all these areas of our broken world where Jesus has the authority to heal. And this week, Matthew is going to wrap up this series of healing stories in his biography of Jesus, and he's going to lead us to an invitation to join Jesus in healing the broken places and the broken people in our world. Jesus' disciples are learning to do what he did, that's what it means to be a disciple, and we're learning to do it the way he did it. In Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And what a question. Do we believe Jesus is able to do what we need, what we ask for, what we want for? Yes, Lord, they replied, and then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you, and their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, See that you tell no one, don't let anyone know about this. So they went out and did the exact opposite. They spread the news about him all over the region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute began speaking. And the crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel but the Pharisees. The grumpy Pharisees on the side were like, It's only by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So a couple quick things here before we move on to the final verses in chapter 9 that I really want to spend the majority of our time on this morning. Jesus heals the blind men who see him for who he is, while the Pharisees who have eyes and can't see intentionally remain ignorant to who he is. They essentially blind themselves so they don't have to face the truth. But there's something curious here, right? Why does Jesus tell these men not to tell anyone? He's like, I healed you. You can see now. The first thing I want to do is be like, look, I'm blind. I'm pretty much blind without my glasses. They'd be like, I don't need glasses anymore, right? Um, I'd be very excited about that. I'd be telling everyone about that. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. That seems weird. Doesn't he want everyone to know that he's the Messiah? That he's the long-promised king? Doesn't he want people to know and believe in him? He tells them to keep it secret because Jesus knows when he attracts enough attention, he will be killed by the Roman Empire and the religious leaders. And he still has work to do. He still has people to see and disciples to train. When it's time for him to die, you'll notice in the story of Matthew as we go on, he starts doing public things in places like Jerusalem, and very quickly the powerful kill him. Right now he's being like a ninja. He's sneaking around. He's like, he's doing all these Messiah things. He's doing things that the Messiah was said to do, was prophesied to do, but he's being kind of quiet about it. He's keeping it down on the down low. Because as soon as the Roman Empire and the religious leaders find out, they're going to put him to death. Now, Matthew's being clever here, including these two stories. These two stories about the blind and the mute are supposed to make us think of a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 35, 5-6. Really, Matthew is split into two parts. Chapter 16 is essentially where Matthew shifts his story. So leading up to 16, he's showing us all these things about Jesus. And then in chapter 16, Jesus says, Who do you think I am? And Matthew has staged that in the middle of his gospel as he's giving you all this build-up and you're supposed to wrestle with who is Jesus at this point. And so he's not being overtly uh, coming out and saying he's the Messiah yet until after. 
chapter 16. But these two passages are meant, supposed to make us think of Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, which is a messianic prophecy. This is what it says. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened when the Messiah comes, and the ears of the deaf, deaf will be unstopped. Then the lamb will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. And so Matthew's putting these two verses together to make us think of this Isaiah, a messianic prophecy in Isaiah. So we're like, oh, wait a minute. Jesus is kind of being stealth. He's kind of being a ninja. But he's fulfilling all the prophecies that they said the Messiah would. And the people who know the Old Testament the best, the Pharisees, they probably, most of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. Instead of seeing a fulfillment of prophecy, they're like, mm -mm, this is evil at work. Healing people, evil. Helping people, evil. Because believing in Jesus would mean admitting that they were wrong about what God was like. And they would much rather miss the Messiah than admit that they were wrong. It would mean repenting and changing direction. And they were much too proud for that. They would lose too much power if they did that. They would rather miss the long-awaited king than face their own failure. They would rather believe a pleasant lie than accept an unpleasant truth. It was easier to say that Jesus was evil than to admit that Jesus was king. Now, before we get too hard on that, we should ask ourselves, what kind of mental gymnastics do I do to avoid letting Jesus be king in different areas of my life? Because I do this exact same thing in certain areas of my life where I'm like, well, it's just easier to skirt around this or ignore this or push this over into a corner and not let Jesus be king over everything. Okay, let's look at where we're going to spend most of our time this morning in the final verses of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew here at the end of the chapter and into chapter 10 is going to begin to make an argument about us joining Jesus in his mission to bring healing to a broken world. In chapter 10, he's going to recount all these teachings of Jesus that is essentially like, as you go out to continue to heal like I do, this is how you should do it, this is what you should do, this is how you should join me in my mission of reconciling heaven and earth. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 38. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, growing up in evangelical churches, I literally heard these verses all the time. Almost every Sunday, if not every Sunday. Now, this was evangelical churches. This was before evangelical just meant religious people who vote Republican. It used to mean people centered on the Evangelion. <laughs> That's the Greek word for good news, or more specifically, the good news of Jesus. They were supposed to be churches centered around sharing the good news of Jesus. That's a great thing. That's a good thing. You should be centered around this. Um, somehow today, though, that title has become about enforcing our worldview on the masses through government intervention. That's never what Evangelion was about. Uh, but there's another, that's another sermon for another time, and we're not going to get into that today. Anyways. These churches usually summed up the good news of Jesus like this. This is what I heard every week growing up in Evangelical. Uh, I keep mixing Greek and English, sorry. Um, evangelical churches. You're on the way to hell, but you could go to heaven if you repeat this prayer. That's the good news of Jesus I heard every week in churches. 
And evangelical churches love to repeat this verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that God sends more workers to the harvest. And then they would say something like this. Your co-workers are ready to pray a prayer and change their eternal destination from heaven to hell. You just need to be the one to ask. Your neighbors are ready to pray a prayer and change their eternal destination from heaven to hell. You just need to ask. Your family members, your friends, the person at the grocery store checkout line, the waiter at the restaurant, they're ready to pray this prayer. You just need to ask. People are ready, but you're not willing to ask, and so they're going to hell. And I would sit there and be like, oh my gosh, I feel so much guilt and shame. Anyone ever hear anything like this? Yeah, a few, oh, a few of us. Yeah. Um, I would sit there and feel guilty and ashamed because God made me an introvert. I don't like talking to people. It's not that I'm ashamed of Jesus. I just don't want to talk to people at all. Like, I don't want to go up to a stranger and be like, if you died right now, would you be with Jesus or would you be burning forever in hell? Like, I just, that feels like an uncomfortable conversation. I like Jesus a lot, but I don't want to have that conversation. That feels very uncomfortable. I don't want to talk to a stranger. Um, maybe you're not like that. Maybe it's just me. But to me, I was like, I feel very uncomfortable with this. And I felt all this pressure and baggage. And I was like, I need to change who I am in order to become this e e evangelistic person that I'm supposed to be as a follower of Jesus. And I tried for years to do it. And all I did was feel more shame and more failure. I remember hearing stories of pastors on planes talking to the people next to them, asking them to repeat this prayer so they could go to heaven and not hell. And I thought, man, I'm a bad pastor. I get on a plane and I'm like, headphones in. I sure hope nobody wants to talk to me because I'm about to go on a show mode, you know? Watch a movie, listen to some music. I don't want to talk to some ch ch uh, Chad and Kathy sit down next to me. Uh, one pastor I knew used to tell every waiter um, when he would go to a restaurant, you keep my water cup filled and you let me tell you about a prayer that can change your life and I'll give you a good tip. And he bragged about all the waiters who prayed this prayer with him. And I couldn't help but think, would they have prayed it if the tip wasn't on the line? Um, now, there's multiple things I want to talk about here. So here's the three big ideas that I wanted to address. What is evangelism? What is the gospel? And what is the harvest Jesus is saying is busting at the seams and really need workers? First off, evangelism, for a long time I thought this. Evangelism was sitting somebody down, watching them make a profession of faith. They were like, I'm an atheist, but now I'm a Christian. Because you just told me to, you just told me about Jesus. And I'm like, that's evangelism. Evangelism is not watching people be baptized. It's not renouncing atheism for Christianity. Those aren't bad things. We want people to do those things. But that's not the definition of evangelism. Evangelism is moving people one step closer to Jesus. If you're doing that, you're evangelizing. If an encounter with you makes someone one step closer to Jesus, you're evangelizing with them. That doesn't mean you need to explain the doctrine of the cross. Like, oh man, if I didn't completely spell out 1,500 years of church theology and doctrine in this conversation, it doesn't count. No, if you move them one step closer, counts. You don't have to explain atonement theory, because guess what? People in seminary don't even understand it. it if you move someone one step closer to Jesus, you're being evangelistic. Loving your neighbor as an open follower of Jesus can be evangelistic. Listening to your Muslim neighbor share about her name and offering to pray to Jesus for her can be evangelism. When we as representatives of Christ do things that Jesus would do, we are removing barriers between people and Jesus. That's evangelism. Evangelism is when we move people one step closer to Jesus. 
Uh, I think sometimes we draw really weird lines and we're like, unless you get someone to pray a prayer or unless you say all the right words, it doesn't count. That's just not true. Sometimes walking up to someone cold on the street and asking them to pray a prayer puts more barriers between them and Jesus instead of less barriers. Many people are doing something they call evangelism that is more akin to selling Jesus than it is encouraging people to surrender to Jesus' way of life. I remember going to a concert with a friend. There was somebody, it was a secular concert, there was somebody out on the sidewalk in front of the concert with a whole horn shouting, You're going to hell except Jesus! You're going to hell except Jesus! My friend, who was not a Christian, said, I'm glad you're not like that. He's like, that makes me want to be even farther away from Jesus than I did before. And I thought, here he is, somebody I've been sharing my faith with, I've been befriending, we're good friends, and I'm like, this just took him a step backwards from where he was headed. Now that guy standing on the street corner, he's like, man, I'm so sacrificial. I'm out here evangelizing. I'm doing this hard thing. But he was actually adding barriers instead of removing barriers between people and Jesus. The early church loved their neighbors, shared meals with the hungry, and the church exploded in growth, exponentially exploded. It took over the world. The modern American church copies selling techniques from the American business industry, and it's in free fall. Let's do the math. Second, the gospel is not good news, you're on your way to hell, but if you repeat this prayer, you can go to heaven. I've talked a lot in the past about heaven and hell, both biblical concepts. Sometimes we get a little skewed on what exactly scripture is talking about, but it's in there. But that's not the good news. First off, no one in scripture ever says, repeat this prayer. Search through the scripture. You can spend all life. There's nowhere in there where an apostle, a disciple, anyone ever says, hey, repeat this prayer after me. In fact, many people become followers of Jesus without praying any kind of prayer in Scripture. No one ever in Scripture says, I ask Jesus into my heart. That borders on paganism, repeating magic word, words to ward off the wrath of the gods. The gospel is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's good news because he's king of the world. He's a good king who would die for us to be with him in his coming kingdom. The good news is that everyone and anyone is welcome to join him in his good kingdom where death, racism, sickness, war, and evil are going to be managed forever. Jesus invites us to come and become students of how he lived and loved, to learn to become citizens, kingdom citizens, to escape the kingdom of darkness that is being dismantled. And live with him in the kingdom of the light. That's the good news. Um, now, growing up in evangelical churches, I was taught to get people to repeat the sinner's prayer. And this is what it usually looked like. It usually went something like this. There were some variations. This is what it usually said. Dear God, I know I am a sinner. I want to turn from my sins. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe he died for my sins and that you raised him to life. I want him to come into my heart to take control of my life. I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward in Jesus' name. This prayer really took shape in the 1960s and the 1970s as American Christianity saw a resurgence. There was actually a movement away from Christianity after World War II and then it saw a resurgence. People wanted a quick and easy way to share their faith and have new followers of Jesus affirm the central doctrines of Christianity. Most people in America knew the basics of Christianity. It was just in the air. It was in the culture. And so this simple prayer was a way to say, yes, I am in. I know these things. I mostly believe them already. But this is a way for me to say, yes, I'm in it. I want it. This is what, how I'm going to live my life. They knew this stuff already, but now they wanted to believe it. They, they wanted this for their lives. Now, I don't think 
the sinner's prayer is an unhelpful thing, uh, or is a bad thing. I think everything in it is true. I think everything that I just read is a true thing. I think it's unhelpful to de define evangelism as only sharing this prayer with someone. Like, if you didn't share the prayer, you didn't do evangelism. That's just not true. It's not a prayer that's in Scripture, and it's not a prayer that saves us. Jesus does. We live in a country today that's very different from the 1960s and 1970s. We live in a country today where most people don't understand the basics of Christianity. The average person in America is in a very different place today than they were in the 1960s and the 1970s. In that time, many people had a volitional barrier to joining Jesus. And this prayer helped them get over this. Volitional barriers are, I need to willfully choose that I want this. Today, most people don't have that barrier. They have different barriers. They have emotional barriers to becoming a student of how Jesus is loved. Emotional barriers like they've been hurt by churches or they've been hurt by Christians. That's an emotional barrier that they have to get over. Or, or they have intellectual barriers to become a disciple. They are educated and have read the latest scientific reports and they're like, wait a minute, how does evolution jive with creation? Or they've studied the latest historian and they're like, wait a minute, was it Babylon or was it Assyria? Because the Bible says this and yet archaeological records say this and maybe cast some doubts on aspects of the Bible. Or they have informational barriers. They're now post-Christian. They're not even sure what Jesus is about. Um, I remember when Darby and I moved up here, we met several people who were like, I've never been inside a church in my entire life. I kind of know Christianity is out there, but I don't know anything about it. I've never touched a Bible in my life. And you're like, really in America? Yes, there's many people like that. We're now at least a generation post-Christian. In some parts of the country, a couple generations post-Christian. For many people in our community, Jesus as a foreign to them, as Buddha is to us, or as Hinduism is to us. If you're like, give me the five tenets of Buddhism or Hinduism, you'd be like, I don't know. That's how they are about Christianity. So just giving them a prayer to pray isn't helpful when they have different barriers between them and Jesus. Using a method to overcome volitional barriers on people who have emotional, intellectual, or informational barriers will only add more barriers between them and Jesus. Every generation has the unique responsibility to figure out how to share the good news of Jesus with their peers. Now, the good news of Jesus doesn't change. He's king. That's the good news, right? He accepts everyone to escape the kingdom of darkness and enter his kingdom of light. That good news doesn't change, but how we share it must change because the world doesn't stop moving. It changes. We must find out how the people around us can hear and understand the gospel. And as culture changes, we must present the good news of King Jesus and his coming kingdom in new ways too. People are asking different questions than they did 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And so we need to change how we answer in order to better answer their questions. Sometimes the people on the cutting edge of what God used last are sometimes the biggest barriers to what God wants to do next. I'm just going to say that again. Sometimes the people on the cutting edge of what God used last are sometimes the biggest barriers to what God wants to do next. It's not that the sinner's prayer was bad. It's just that people are in a different place today than they were back then. It was highly effective. It saw an explosion of people come to faith in Jesus. That's a great thing. We can praise that. We can celebrate that. But people are very different today. And if you walk up to them and try to get them to pray that prayer, you're going to add barriers instead of remove barriers. Because they're in a different place. They're different people than they were 30, 40 years ago.
In my Bible college, they constantly shouted at us in Bible college and seminary, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Get out there, ask people to pray this prayer and get saved. The reason people aren't coming to faith is because you won't get out there. You're too shy, you're too ashamed, you're too scared, whatever. Too lazy, get out there and do it. And having had some doubts in my late teens, early 20s, and being reaffirmed in my faith, I decided I wanted to get serious about this. So I remember going to my pastor in Bible college. He quoted this verse every Sunday in the pulpit. And I said, okay, what can I do? I want to do it. Like, I believe this thing. I've settled my doubts. I want to do it. I, what can I do? The harvest is great. And so he proceeded to print off a list of addresses, gave me a clipboard and a pen, and some poorly worded religious informational pamphlets with grammatical mistakes, and proceeded to drop me off in the nearest neighborhood to knock on doors and ask people to pray this prayer. And being an excited college student, you know, I was like, yes. I was nervous, but I was excited. After all, the harvest was great. Jesus said that. And the pastor started to drive off. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't you going to come with me? He goes, I have important pastor things to do. Have fun. The harvest is great. Get out there. Um, and so for a year, once a week, for an hour and a half a week, I'd go to the church, get a list of names, be dropped off on the neighborhood, and knock the doors, asking people to pray a prayer to be saved because the harvest was great. Guess how many people prayed that prayer with me that year? Zero. Guess how many people sent dogs after me? Three. Three. Yeah, not 20, thank you. Just three. Um, it's the South, so people were at least that said, you know, in general respect did not send dogs at me. Except for these three. Yeah. One person gave me lemonade because it was really hot one day. And she said, bless your heart, and gave me lemonade. Um, after that year, I told the pastor, I'm not doing this anymore. I was disillusioned, I was frustrated, I was upset, and I realized something. The way we were going about evangelism was either wrong or didn't work anymore, or we misunderstood what harvest Jesus was talking about, or both. And I think it's both. Where does this verse come at in the Gospel of Matthew? If we don't pluck it out of context, where is it coming at? It's coming in context at the end of a long section of Jesus healing, hurting, and broken people. That was Matthew 8 and 9. We just did that week after week after week. And at the end of that, what does Jesus say? The harvest is plentiful. What is the harvest? The harvest is people who need healing. The harvest are people who are hungry for hope. And Jesus is saying, there are few people out there bringing healing. There are a few people out there offering hope. But the harvest is big. But few people are actually out there. Still not convinced? Look at what Jesus does in the verse right before this. It says he teaches them and he heals them. He sees how much they are hurting and he has compassion. Being moved with compassion, what does he say? The harvest is plentiful with so many hurting people. But we have few people at work in the world to heal instead of causing more hurt. Still not convinced? Look over to chapter 10. Jesus gathers his 12 disciples right after them, and he gives them authority to get people to pray a prayer. No, what does it say? He gives them authority to heal and topple spiritual strongholds. If the harvest is full of people waiting to pray a prayer, something is wrong because the American church is in dramatic decline. Someone says it's because, well, we don't have enough workers going out and getting people to pray a prayer. I would say it's because we've gone about evangelism the wrong way, We've misunderstood how culture has changed, and we've misunderstood the harvest that Jesus was concerned about to begin with. If Jesus meant, though, that the world is full of hurting people, that there is just fields and fields and fields of hurting 
people who are desperate for hope out here, and there are a few people making time to hear them and help them, well, every one of us would us do. We just have to think about our workplaces or our families or our neighborhoods or our city. People are desperate for healing and hope. Now, some of you might have a completely different issue with this topic. Evangelism or proselytizing uh, has become a really negative word in our culture, in our pluralistic society, where everybody's like, you just do your truth. Like, don't, don't try to push your truth on me. You do your own truth, I'll do my own. In our pluralistic society, evangelism has become a dirty word. But what Jesus intended was nothing like shoving your beliefs down someone else's throat and convincing them that you're right and they're wrong and they're going to hell for being so foolish and not agreeing with you. That's nothing like what Jesus was talking about here. Living and loving like Jesus changes you. It changes you for the better. And we believe that more people living and loving like Jesus changes the world for the better. We're not trying to convince people that they're wrong. We're trying to invite them into the abundant life that Jesus offers that we have found that is available for them too. Too often in our culture, for way too long, evangelism has looked like arguments. I see all the time someone on Facebook arguing with someone about the person of Jesus or the Bible or something about Christianity. And they're like, I'm just trying to evangelize. I'm just trying to share my faith. Like you're trying to win an argument and you look like a jerk. That's not evangelism. You're adding barriers between people and Jesus. When you remove barriers between people and Jesus, that's evangelism. For too long, evangelism in the church in America has looked like apologetics, where you try to make someone who believes differently than you look stupid. I I've just found so that I've made so much more progress introducing Jesus to people by listening instead of lecturing. To Jesus, evangelism is bringing healing and hope to hurting people and inviting them to taste and see that he is a good king. It is becoming a person of peace and an agent of love so that in the name of Jesus, we can remove barriers between people and him. I want people to come to faith in Jesus. And I think as his followers, we have a responsibility to do that. But it doesn't happen by me walking up to a stranger on the street and saying, hey, pray this prayer. Because that doesn't work and it adds more barriers. So if you've felt a lot of shame for a long time sitting in churches, you're like, man, I just, I don't know how I can go about this. Evangelism looks like loving your neighbor, loving your family member, loving your friend in the name of Jesus, and listening to them, and maybe sharing with them about what Jesus has done in your life. Look, the harvest of hurting people in need of hope in our city is very great. Pray that God sends you and me into the harvest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to bring healing. Forgive me for so often how I, I've got it so messed up. I'm so worried about getting people's theology right instead of actually just giving them an invitation to come and experience what I've experienced. That you're a loving, forgiving Father and that you're the king of a good kingdom that is coming to set all worlds right. That will be so good to work backwards to unravel the worst moments of our lives. God, help me to have the boldness to share your love and to share your peace with hurting people desperately. Because the harvest is plentiful. There are people everywhere we go who are wounded and hurt and worn down and exhausted and defeated. And God, there's very little hope, there's very little encouragement, there's very little light. But we have that mission to join you to bring healing and hope and to extend invitations into your kingdom wherever we go. And we do that not with a